what I think is a big theme of the TV show is this concept of personhood. Who is a person? What rights do they have? What happens if you take away someone's memories? Are they incomplete as a person? Because we see, you know, the Cleons are incomplete people. We find out that their memories have been heavily edited. And of course, there's part of season one is this whole uh, concept of whether they have a soul or not. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Selden Crisis for a conversation with someone who knows just a thing or two about Asimov and Foundation. Having helmed a podcast that has plunged deeply into the core trilogy, then each of the two prequels, along with blanket coverage of each of the first two seasons of the Apple TV show. Way back when I began this podcast, in April of 2021, and even earlier in the lockdown year that preceded it, I reread the core Foundation trilogy for the first time in several decades, and finally got around to reading all the prequels and sequels. A darn good way to while away a pandemic, I must say. I remember wanting to share the magic of these books. I introduced them to my son, and he devoured them eagerly, but it wasn't enough. I wanted to find a community of like-minded fans of this amazingly speculative world 20 millennia in our future. That's the impulse that launched the podcast. And I immediately started searching out others already in this space, no pun intended. I found one Asimov-themed podcast by some folks in a divinity school, of all things, and they did some intense coverage of the first book, never seeming to mind too much or notice Asimov's atheism. Maybe they got spooked by that, but they never even got as far as the mule, which was kind of disappointing to me. Um, then I moved on. I looked for other things. Um, Another really good analysis came up a little bit later, an analysis of the trilogy by the Rehydrate podcast, but it was just a season along the, uh, along the way of covering some other excellent sci-fi like The Three-Body Problem and Dune. Um, I really recommend Rehydrate for anybody who hasn't listened to it. Um, I discovered then um, uh, the Asimov-themed Reddit communities like our Asimov and uh, For Better or For Worse, uh, made some interesting friends there, just a couple enemies, maybe. Um, one day, though, I found a podcast called Star's End, and judging by the name, dove right in. They were focused entirely and obsessively on foundation and nothing else. Their whole first season was a thorough analysis of the trilogy, and the hosts obviously knew Asimov and the source material through and through. Since then, Star's End has been working nonstop, covering the prequels to Foundation, as well as spending full seasons on each of the two seasons of the Apple TV show. I'd found at least a big part of that Asimov community I'd been looking for at last. One of the three hosts of Star's End, John Blumenfeld, is with me today to talk about his journey with Asimov and his love for Foundation. Welcome, John, to Selden Crisis. Oh, thank you very much, Joel. And it's it's nice to be here as myself, as opposed to the person that we have come to call the galaxy's sexiest librarian, Homer Munn, uh, which I had a tremendously good time portraying Homer on your podcast. I was going to put that in the intro, but I, I was wondering if maybe I, I should like let people uh, like see if they could remember if they caught that voice. Um, but it wasn't exactly your voice. You made it. You made it I made it a little different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, Homer's a little, you know, he's sort of a stuffy academic. 
he uses yeah. a lot of big words. Um, you know, his language is very, it's kind of the science fiction writer's image of the educated man. And uh, he has a stutter as well, which I was, I tried to be very, very careful about that. Um, yeah. I didn't want to make it into a joke, but it's definitely part of his personality, especially when the plot turns a little bit on the fact that he stops stuttering and becomes a lot more confident. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. so I didn't want to leave it out, but I also wanted to keep in mind that I don't have a speech impediment, but there are people out there who do. And, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't want it to be a, uh, I didn't want it to be a source of humor. I just yeah, wanted to be I, I felt the same way with uh, uh, the Lord Dorwin voice when yeah, I did Dorwin. when I did that. Because Although Dorwin I mean, really was a joke. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, and yeah. that's the thing. It was Asimov's joke, uh, and I was just being you know faithful to it. But we were very uh, you know, disappointed that Lord Dorwin in the TV show didn't have anything like that. Uh, no snuff box. That's my biggest uh, <laughs> snuff box. Yeah, <laughs> they did get the atomic ashtray. <laughs> yes, yes, eventually. Uh, so do you want to tell me, tell the uh, listeners anything about yourself? Uh, I mean, really the only thing that's really appropriate to this is, is Star's End. Uh, I encourage people to listen to Star's End. You've been a guest on Star's End twice. We've been I'm glad to have you. I'm sure we'll have you again in the future. Um, in addition to covering the foundation books and the prequels, we also did the robot novels, starting with the Caves of Steel and, and moving all the way through Robots and Empire. All of which Asimov, you know, at the end of his life, kind of brought everything into the single universe. And, I knew and there fact, was something uh, much more than just the prequels you had done. And I actually listened to those too, but I... That's fine. Yeah. But um, we will probably uh, start picking up on the sequels, which we have not gotten to. And there's a few other things as well that, I mean, we're not going to run out of material. Uh, and the one thing that's going on right now, although I don't know when this will come out, but we are... Uh, we are asking people to vote for the second, not really annual Harry Awards, which we give to actors and directors in episodes of the show. Um, it's all tongue in cheek, but if you go to starsendpodcast.com, there's a there's a ballot. There's ten questions, and uh, one of my co-hosts, Joseph Kolasinski, who's a math professor, voting theory is really his thing, and so he has a lot of kind of interesting ways to vote for things. And uh, we'll we'll talk about it at length if you get them started. Um, you know, like rank choice voting is for amateurs, as yeah. far as Joseph is concerned. I There's was going to ask a whole about world that. of voting theory beyond that. Huh. Interesting. Um, yeah, I I recommend um, I, the podcast just for uh, I mean the uh, the website for what Joseph does there, right? Joseph and also his his own about. his own blog is is so interesting. Uh, it's, he really gives. Uh, very thorough uh, recaps of all the episodes of the TV show. Yeah. And, you know, Joseph's grandfather was an artist who did a lot of drawings for science fiction magazines in kind of, I guess, in the 30s and 40s, a lot of which are very, very difficult to find. And I don't know how much of that he's put online, but I know it's a project that he's working on. And he really illustrated a lot of these early kind of golden age of science or pre-golden age of science fiction magazines. So that's a great connection. Well, I, I just blabbed a little bit about like how I got to, you know, the motivation to do a podcast. And could you tell anything about how you met your co-hosts and yeah, I mean, together? really it was on Twitter and not X. It wasn't X yet. It was Twitter. And it was, we started in April, 2021 as well. The same, the same time you did, although we didn't discover each other for a little while. 
And what happened was, well, from my, my journey was that I started going to Twitter for news. And the news was so terrible and so distressing and so bad for my mental health that yeah. a, a little piece of my Twitter exposure was Star Trek, which mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of. Tommy, and I started subtracting journalists and adding more Star Trek people so that the balance of what I would see on the timeline was more Star Trek and less what was going on in the real world. And eventually I had built up quite a, a group of Star Trek people, some of which are some of whom are still on Twitter, but a lot of them have left now or X. <laughs> and uh, my other co-host, Dan Freed, had seen that Apple TV had announced that there was going to be a TV show, although very, very little else other than that there was a, a, a TV show foundation coming out. David Goyer was going to be the showrunner. Some cast members, we knew Jared Harris was going to be in it. We knew Lee Pace was going to be in it. Very little else was, was available, and we didn't even know when it was going to be launched. And so Dan just sent out a Twitter message basically saying, hey, Foundation's going to be a TV show. Is there anybody who loves Foundation like I do and wants to do a podcast? And Joseph and I answered. Uh, we're all close to that. Joseph and I are very close in age. Dan is a little bit younger. But we all grew up and read. Uh, I mean, Joseph and I read Foundation. Well, I read Foundation in the 70s. Uh, we all kind of read them as teenagers, as young teenagers, and just fell in love with them. Mm-hmm. and have maintained that love for Asimov and Foundation ever since then. So we started doing the podcast not knowing when the show would actually come out. And we started going through the original books, the Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and Second Foundation. And we actually finished the three books, the original books, with one week to spare. So we used that last week as a kind of a preview. What do we think we're going to get on the TV show? And then the show started and we covered the show. It, it worked out almost as if we had planned it. Although like everything on Star's End, we did not plan it at all. It was just <laughs> completely free form. We just got lucky. Now you're you're really uh, organized and phased well and everything for not planning things. I mean, it seems uh, like everything is really nicely Sometimes structured. you can squeeze these things in at the last minute and it looks like you planned yeah. it, but you really didn't. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we should probably say something about that TV show. I um, I didn't I even know there was going to be a show when I started, when I thought of doing the podcast. And in fact, I had written my first like five scripts or was in the process of writing them, I think, when I first heard about the show. I thought, huh, that could work out. That's nice. Yeah, uh, and I think it has to some degree, although there's al- also been that big uh, tension between book lovers and uh, the show that uh, was especially noticeable in season one, uh, I found. Uh, it seemed like by the time season two came along, the, the real uh, show haters had kind of moved on. and Yeah. Like, I think that's right. Spent spent their venom, and there wasn't going to be much point in sputtering anymore. Um, and those of us who had found some, you know, accommodation with uh, the differences, uh, found uh, that it was possible to really enjoy it along with the books as its own kind of thing. Um, and I've really had a great time with it. I've really been. It, I mean, this. This last season, I was pretty much obsessed with it. I, I was like thinking about nothing else from week to week and spending a lot of time listening to 
the podcasts that go along with the show and spending a lot of time on Reddit and uh, on Twitter. Um, but at the expense of uh, something called Selden Crisis, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, you know, for us, because we're kind of doing an analysis as we go along, that tension between the books and the show is a constant source of material for us. Mm -hmm. We can always talk about it. And it is a complicated relationship. You know, they, they are constantly dancing around the idea of psychohistory, which is central to the books. And we're always asking, what are they doing with psychohistory in the TV show? There's a few things that I kind of, I don't like that much. Like they throw out names of people from the book and sort of assign them randomly to various characters. Yeah. And I, even before you know, I saw some of these characters, I, I, I said, I really don't want them to do that just so they can get that kind of Leo, Leo DiCaprio meme where they go, oh, I've heard that name, you know, that's pointing, yeah. pointing and at the screen. That's that's exactly what happens with me too. It's like what, Limar Ponyats. I'm like, whoa, Limar Ponyats. And I, I know he's Limar just mentioned Ponyats. too. He doesn't yeah, even show yeah, up. Yeah, you know? and, and then Over it's like pretends to be what Limar. what follows it is like this thing. That's not Limar Ponyats. What right. are they talking about? Hey, that's supposed to be Limar Ponyats, and you're calling him over over Mel. But like the people that <laughs> are on Terminus, you know, there's Seth Cermak who really yeah. lived hundreds of years before. There's there's. Counselor Sut, there's there's all these various names that you, and, and Counselor you really Sut, plus when they they turn them into like from villains to to heroes and vice versa, like Sut in the books was a really like he was Mallow's uh, arch enemy. He was, although in, there in was government. a previous Sut as well. If you really really read him closely, there's a previous Sut either Asimov intended for them to one to be descended from the oh, other, on the or board just of, liked the name on the like the. What was that board called? Uh, that, yeah, that he's Lewis on the Pirene's, board. Uh, yeah, during the whole Anacreon crisis, I believe. Yeah, yeah. One of them is Sut, and then okay. Joran Sut is the one who is uh, Mallow's antagonist later. Yeah, yeah. But I think Asimov maybe just liked the name and, and didn't even realize he was doing that. It's possible. He like he likes those single uh, uh, four letter single syllable names like uh, Sut. Um, yeah, he so, does. so many like that. Yeah. So I, you know, like I don't love that, um, but I, but also, you know, they did try to address the topic of psychohistory. They did try to come back to it. I think, look, I, I have a reputation on our podcast as being the TV show apologist. I go in and try to say, well, here's why they actually really are treating psychohistory correctly. And here's, you know, here's where they're really, and it, sometimes I bend myself into pretzels yeah, trying to yeah. do that because I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I, I think they- And sometimes they come through and, that, like and you, they, you find out later that you were not, you, you know, you should, you didn't need to bend yourself into pretzels. That's true. They, they had a plan for some I, of these things. Yes. And I think yeah. they have come through in in- in regards to that, uh, I think they really have done a. They've they've addressed the subject, and and one of the things that I always say is that if there's ambiguity in the show, and in the ambiguity tends to be between two theories of history, right? There's the great man theory of history and the bottom up theory of history. Psychohistory sort of depends on the bottom up theory of history being right. That historical forces are going to make the great events happen, regardless of the excuse me. <clears throat> regardless of the individual people, the Napoleons and the Einsteins, like the bottom-up theory says those people don't really matter. 
They appear when they're needed. And the, t- the great man theory, which for a long time was the theory of, you know, Western uh, hist- history, was that history moves from great man or woman, but of course, history being what it is, it's very often men, from, from great man to great man, and the events of history follow those great men. So for psychohistory, it really requires the bottom-up theory of history. And so there's this tension, like we see all these people whose actions really seem to matter who really are great people. And you say, well, they can't make up their mind, whether it's bottom up or great man. But if you really read Foundation, I I believe that Asimov never really decided between Mm -hmm. these theories of history. And in some ways you could say the bottom up psychohistory like is lost in in foundation because of the mule you know the mule well came i mean in and that's and that's exactly the point minute, that he, one person he follows can. and he claims he didn't do this on purpose but he follows the bel rios story which in the books is the ultimate vindication of psychohistory no matter what bel rios would have done he was going to lose mm-hmm. he could not have beaten the foundation because history was didn't matter what individual decisions he made he was going to lose and so psychohistory is absolutely cast in iron, you know, locks everybody in. And then immediately afterwards, the mule shows up and just blows all that out of the water by, through the strength of his individual abilities. And so Asimov never really well, settled uh, on it. I think that's why he's so endearing to me, uh, is that he is not like that doesn't have the typical human uh, trait of like developing a thesis and getting hooked into it and defending it till till he dies you know uh, asimov almost like relished undermining his own theory you know on his own premise and i like, think that's true out i mean again to... he says he didn't do it on purpose but you never know what how how writers come up with ideas well here's the thing actually the, yeah go ahead Appropriate to that is that I, I was thinking today about this whole idea that asimov based foundation on the decline and fall of the roman empire and he said that specifically. And then there was the, all the conversations with John W. Campbell. And that's always kind of bothered me because I've read The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. And Asimov's story doesn't really follow the empire all that much. And Not Gibbon enough. really does. Gibbon doesn't really talk about what's going on outside the empire, except for the fact that the empire is bringing in mercenaries all the time and that that was one of the causes. And Gibbon also attributes... And this is part of the reason why he was controversial for so long. He attributes a lot of the fall of the Roman Empire to the advent of Christianity. And Asimov does not attribute the fall of the Galactic Empire to religion. Right. But Gibbon did. And so there's this sort of accepted view that, oh, this is the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And and, and I've always thought, well, not really. I mean, maybe the basic kernel of the idea came from that. I know that Asimov loved that book, supposedly read it twice. Um, And I think I think I made it through it once in college and it wasn't, I was supposed to be studying for STEM for, you know, geology. And here I'm reading the history. That's a good reason why I, I, you know, my life turned out the way it did. But um and anyway, that's another one of those things where I think Asimov just absolutely loved that story. Yeah. But he wasn't content to just, he didn't hook into it and say, I've got to tell this story just the, and put it in the future. And so everybody knows about this story. It's more like, how can I subvert the hell out of this story or write this story from a completely different direction? 
Yeah. And there was an interesting thing. Um, another one of my favorite podcasts uh, is uh, Literature and History. Oh, they, I love it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I was listening to one. Uh, this goes back at least a year. Um, he did an episode about, uh, it was fascinating. It was about uh, uh, Imperial Britain and the the discovery of uh, the rediscovery of Roman ruins in Britain uh, in the very early Middle Ages, right? And that how they saw these, you know, amazing uh, these tribal people, you know, who, who had you know come into these this land and found these relics of these amazing buildings that the Romans had built, and we're just seeing it from the from the outside of like this feeling of like wow there was this gigantic amazing civilization that we don't know anything about and this is all that's left of it and who are we you know <laughs> yeah I, it it struck me as uh it kind of the perspective that asimov put his story of the decline and fall of the roman empire in is like how how the outside would uh relate to you know, an ancient empire or a, yeah. a fallen empire. Interesting. Yeah. I, I guess I've always thought that the the basic idea was that Gibbon makes the the fall of the Roman Empire seem inevitable, and Asimov was kind of asking the question: Is that is that the case? Are empires like the Roman Empire destined to fall because of the forces of history? And I think. In my personal opinion, I think that led him to this idea of history as a you know as a collection of forces. It, you know, it's an idea that's been around. Marx famously considered history to be that way, um, and and so I think he was asking that question: Is it inevitable that an enormous empire is going to fall? And then I think everything else kind of fell out from there. And keep in mind that you know Asimov was twenty one years old when he started writing Foundation. It's just amazing, inconceivable. Yeah. And, you know, I find that when I read his later stuff, his style never really changed, for better or worse. You know, his Asimov's voice is there in Foundation, and it is there in the stuff he wrote at the end of his life, the same voice. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Wow. So about that show. Yeah, okay, let's talk about the show. <laughs> um, so what did you... Um, I, oh, yeah. Going back to what I was saying originally before I introduced you, I was thinking back to my hopes for, you know, my hopes for like what this community of people interested in Asimov could be uh, um, was kind of part of it was thinking about the ideas in Foundation and how they seem timeless and always relevant in that it's about a gigantic crisis for humanity. And it seems like we always have one of those, but now we have like the mother of all giant crises for humanity. Right. And it, so it seems like it becomes more and more relevant. Right. And the, I, I remember early on when I heard about the show thinking, you know, maybe this could be the show could help spark kind of a, a, a like an environmental conscience, you know, like a, an idea of like, the future is something that we need to plan for. And like, we, we, if we're intelligent about this and we think like a, you know, a really smart guy like Selden, we can make intelligent plans and, and 
you know, undo the, the, you know, the catastrophe awaiting is not inevitable if we can plan for it and things like that. Uh, and I kind of feel like that opportunity didn't materialize as I'd hoped uh, in that the show has, I, I get the sense that Goyer's, you know, progressive and liberal and all that, and, you know, cares about the environment stuff, but he really cares about ma- entertainment and making things like really fun, you know? And in some ways I feel like s- some of the big ideas lost out to the fun, you know, that to the, you know, to the, the big ideas about like why it's important to think this way, the way Harry Seldon was thinking lost out to the idea that now let's just have a space opera and lots of really well, I, I mean, partly I think that's true. And that's a point that I've made before is that, you know, if you're going to have a show, it's got to be a show. It's got to be entertaining. Yeah. If you're not entertaining people, you're not going to last very long. And I think they've done a great job of making an entertaining show, number one. Yeah. And, and I don't think it would have gotten this far if he hadn't made it as entertaining as possible. So I have that tension, like, you know, a lot of the purists were thinking, why can't we make, why can't there be like a a true story of foundation in a TV show that follows the books? Well, that would be boring as hell for most people. Right. And I think Boyer correctly identified very early on, like, you know, there's a lot of action that happens in the books off screen Mm -hmm. and you can't make a TV show like that where, oh, well, by the way, the Galactic Empire fell. (laughs) You just, you know, you have to show it. And that's where the big spectacle and the fun is, like the fall of the Star Bridge, you yeah. know, with just a huge special effects thing. And and, and uh, you have to, you know, he was right. He was right about that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, some of the things that he added, and and I think I'm going to talk about why I think they're important for the more artistic reason as well. But but like the Triple Emperor mm-hmm. and the ongoing genetic dynasty, which is no, there's nothing like that in the books. But it's absolutely wonderful in the show. I know our mutual friend Paul Levinson said that he loves the scenes on Trantor with the Emperor and Demerzel and, you know, the rest of it for a long time didn't really live up to that. And, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. But and first of all, the acting performances by Lee Pace and Terrence Mann, Cassian Bilton, and, and of course, Lara Byrne as Demerzel have yep. been just absolutely off the charts. Fantastic. And I, I actually think that's the biggest strength of this show is not the special effects. It's not Asimov. It's these individual performances. I mean, I, I think from this season, Ben Daniels, who was Bell Rios, just yeah. was absolutely captivating. Absolutely. Captivating. Just a fantastic performance. And on and on. I mean, there's so many. Uh, Isabella Laughlin, who is uh, Brother Constant. Everybody loves Brother Constant. Um, yep. Colvinder Gear, who's Polly. I mean, just just on and on and on. Just tremendous mm-hmm. performances. Um, but I, I think that what this show has done is like the, this, this tension between the great man theory and the bottom up theory, it's all there, but it's a little dry. It's a little mm-hmm. like, well, we have to see how things play out over hundreds and hundreds of years to, in order to prove it, but it's there, but it's not, it doesn't suck you in. But the, the, what I think is a big theme of the TV show is this concept of personhood. Who is a person? What rights do they have? What happens if you take away someone's memories? Are they incomplete as a person? Because we see, you know, the Cleons are incomplete people. We find out that their memories have been heavily edited. And of course, there's the part of season one is this whole uh, concept of whether they have a soul or not. 
And the answer appears to come out in the negative, whatever a soul mm-hmm. is. And and we continue that theme here. And there's there's that theme of Demerzel, who has programming. She's a robot. And then she's had extra programming put on top that really constrains her to do things she doesn't want to do. She doesn't have choice. And then there's all the multiple Harrys. You know, then yeah. what are what is the personhood of the Harrys? And that's where you gotta get, I think you get brought into the personal on this show. And those are the emotional and important, interesting stories for the TV show. And and the the uh, the whole historical story is a little it's all the, it's always there. They're always coming back to it, they're always talking about it. We're always evaluating them on it, but it's 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 a dry, long historical thing. We're interested in the in the individuals. And mm-hmm. and the show really has been pressing on that, I think, and doing a fantastic job. Yeah. And and like yeah. you, I was absolutely captivated by season two and couldn't wait for the new episode. And I'm so sad that there's only 10 episodes in a season because it's gone now. Yeah. And will we ever see a third one? Um, well, I, I uh, think we will. I, I think we'll see a third one. I, think I feel like yeah. there were some signs that the audience was, I don't know if the audience was bigger for season two, but I think it was more dedicated. Mm-hmm. And I think they really developed an audience. And just in my own sort of anecdotal looking around on the forums and on Twitter, the enthusiasm that I saw for the show from people who I had no idea were even interested in the show was much bigger for season two than it was for season one. Now that's completely anecdotal and based on a, an audio, you know, a group of, you know, how many people do I really look at on Twitter? Dozens maybe. So it's not scientific, but it just felt like there was more of an upswell of interest in the show. Well, it it's, true for my perspective too. And I know you're not a big Reddit fan, I don't think. Um, I wasn't until uh, Foundation, until my podcast really. Um, and really the only thing I've gotten in, into on Reddit is Foundation and Asma. Uh, but in the first season, it just became this horrible place that I, you know, I, I, I hated. I mean, I, it was a love hate. I enjoyed going there. I, I enjoyed posting there for a while and met some really interesting people. One of the people I, I met there became a guest on this podcast. Uh, I had never known of him before. He's the historian, TCA Akintia, that I had on a couple of years ago. And he still posts there and he always Anytime I see one, he's he's a boring history fan. Um, so if you ever see a boring history fan, if, well, you don't go to Reddit, but if you did and you saw a boring history fan, you'd see this like nice, long, really well thought out, really like you know, pithy stuff. Okay. Uh, and and uh, anyway, the difference between season one and season two is dramatic to me on Reddit. Because uh, a part of it, I think, uh, goes, I, I'm going to call out the, the moderator, um, Lunchy Pete is his name uh, on Reddit. Uh, he did a really good job of like kind of managing the firestorm towards the end of the first season and like creating the, he created this new uh, Foundation TV sub thread, subreddit before it was just our Asimov. And that one became kind of hopeless uh, because that mm. was where most of the purists were. And uh, but the the Foundation TV one also had a lot of people like bitching and moaning and just like a lot of just chaos going on. And he kind of separated it into two threads for the book readers and the non book readers. And gotcha. it, that really worked. And he really had some really 
strong moderation policies in place, and it really kind of settled things down. And that was all, re- all in place for season two. And season two, I think, had had really good uh, community around it on Foundation TV. I, I almost never went to R. Asimov. I went there a couple of times and they were just ignoring it. Uh, once somebody, I, I obliquely referenced it and like got chewed out, you know, by somebody like, you know, don't you dare bring up that awful show, uh, you know, and, so I it's a great there. show. Yeah. Super entertaining. <laughs> I, I've been very, over the years, I've been very forgiving of people making franchises out of the, you know, like for instance, the movie iRobot. A lot of Asimov fans hated iRobot. Thought it was just, I, I mean, I things I've seen remember said about it. that movie. I think I, I think I saw it or, or maybe I just was afraid of it because of so many people talking about how bad it was well i not uh, only from an liked, asimov perspective yeah i not only liked the movie uh, i also thought that the story was very true to asimov even though it was not one of the irobot stories it it was basically addressing the three laws and and how the robots interacted with it and you know what would happen when a robot decided to reinterpret the three laws and i thought it was really Look, you can you can talk about whether you think it's a good movie or not. I liked it. A lot of people didn't like it as a movie. Fine. But as far as this whole like betrayal of Asimov or whatever, I, I feel 100% the opposite. I think they did a great job of telling us what Asimov thought about robots. Yeah, if if Asimov was really if spinning get a lot in of his grave because of that. If yeah. if Asimov was really spinning in his grave as much as people have claimed he has uh, over all these years, he, that'd be a tremendous energy source. Yeah, we'd be able to power yeah. the entire country. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I think he's uh, resting quite comfortably. I think he's fine. Right I mean, I, I think he would have liked to have lived longer. I think yeah, I think he was still bitching about that. Yeah. Uh, I would really love to meet um, Robin Asimov sometime. Hmm. Uh, it's, I, I have to figure out how to reach out to her. She'd be an she ideal is involved guest with on the TV show. Crisis. Yeah. She's an executive producer. Yeah. Maybe there's a way. Maybe there's a anyway. way. Yeah. So season two, um, what made it so good and what, what made it so different from season one? I think part of it was season one had its own Selden crisis uh, of the pandemic um, to deal with and the the, the difficulties they had filming and putting a large enough cast together. That's what I remember Goyer talking about uh, as really impacting the feel of uh, uh, the Anacreon stuff on Terminus um, because they they in, intended to have a hell of a lot more extras. And it, when you look at those, uh, that, that scene, those scenes of the Anacreonians, um, bursting in and, you know, rushing around. It does look really silly in context. And when you think about it, there's not nearly enough people to make that realistic. Um, and that's, so that, you know, that's c- kind of an excuse. But uh, it, other than that, um, I think there's there was a big disparity in the quality of the, I don't know if I, I hate to say the writing because, as somebody who doesn't write screenwriting for TV or anything like that, or anything really fiction writing, um, 
and and most of the people criticizing the writing are like that. Uh, they just, just say bad writing, bad writing, bad writing, yeah. anything they don't write. Right. <laughs> but I think there's there's a lot more that goes into it. I think there's the the premise and the casting. Um, the, the premise of the three Cleons was so brilliant, and th- of Demerzel uh, as a woman, you know, and the uh, just the the rocks solid, you know, just amazing performance by Laura Byrne. Tremendous, yeah. Um, but you know, there was kind of a disparity in in the feeling of quality between those two halves of the show in uh, season one, and they seemed separate. And you you felt like you fell off a little bit when you came to Terminus, you know, like it was kind of like camp or something, and you know, just something rough and not really put together yeah. very well. And then then there's Trantor where everything is just gorgeous and like pristine and beautiful and powerful, and you know, it, so it's that was a problem that they didn't solve, you know, in in the writing or in the structure of it. Uh, in season one, uh, until you get to the end a little bit, I think they start combining things together a little bit better. And at the very end, when when Selden comes out of the vault, it feels like that steps up a little bit, and you feel right. like it ties things up nicely. And and but then we get into season two, and I just felt like uh, it lost that feeling of two separate halves. Uh, and one right, being because the two halves start to interact with each other. Yeah, and one being super impressive, and and the other one struggling to meet meet it. It was more like one whole show and having a lot of different parts, and the the different parts were all interacting, yeah. and you know the the there was nothing that was not really Empire falling. Everything was involved with Empire falling. Right. So it felt like one big show. Well, let me say a couple of things. Um, one is that we felt in both seasons, that they started strong. And if you remember in season one, the first episode was very kind of faithful to the framing story that Asimov had written featuring Gail Dornick, even though Gail was gender switched, but who cares? Um, And then episode two, which really concentrated mostly on the journey from Trantor to Terminus, was completely, it, it was covered by one sentence in the book, and it was an entire episode. And those two episodes were broadcast on the same or, or made available or streamed on the same day, yeah, one after the other. So you went right. straight from really faithful to the book to completely invented. But it, it kind of started off with a bang. You know, there's the trial, mm-hmm. there's the fall of the Star Bridge, there's all of that going on. Fall of the Star Bridge was quite a bang. Quite a bang. And then things kind of slowed down and we really felt, I mean, if you go back and listen to us, episodes kind of three, four, five, even six- Things slowed down a lot. Things got a lot less interesting. We got really worried that they they were not getting it done. And then maybe when, I guess when it was Cleon walks the spiral and then uh, Roxanne Dawson takes over as director for episodes eight and nine, and just, you know, those were just full of just action and everything. And you really brought us back in. The finale was uh, directed by David Goyer himself and, and really tied up the season. And we really felt like it finished really strong. Yep. Uh, second season kind of went the same way. The first couple of episodes really opened up very strong. A whole bunch of new storylines are introduced, a bunch of new characters like the Spacers, who we'd only seen a little bit of, Hober Mallow, you know, all of this stuff shows up. And then they spent a bunch of episodes kind of slowing down 
and telling those stories and filling in the gaps that they had created. But it did slow the show down a bit, a bit until kind of episode seven, which uh, was um, Mark Tonderai was the director of episode seven. And then, and then episodes eight and nine, Roxanne Dawson is back again and really just the whole thing became very strong. And, and then, if, you know, the final episode was kind of a wrap up episode for the season. So we felt like both seasons kind of follow that same pattern. And I understand the reason why they slowed things down in the middle of season two, because they had started so many storylines. They really had to, they had to mm-hmm. stop and tell those stories. And I'm glad they yep. did. But the other thing that I think is noticeable is that if we look at the first season, the stories that are interesting to us, really interesting to us are the individual personal stories like brother day walking the spiral and did he have a vision or did he not and and, and the the person he meets along the way who he helps and helps him to survive and right. yet he comes okay. out of it without having actually learned anything or changed at all and you know or i guess we can argue about that but but that's a personal story right mm-hmm. and um there's a lot of I mean, a lot of what people like about the the Cleons is the personalness of their stories, and and those were the ones that caught you. And there are, I think, there were fewer of those in season one than there were in season two. In season two, we get a lot of personal. Oh, but we get brother. The other one I wanted to mention was Brother Dawn's story of trying to escape from uh, the palace and his romance with the gardener and the horrific punishment that uh, that Brother Day gives to Azura. Yeah. Although there's some evidence that maybe he didn't, but we we don't know. But but uh, you know but that's a that's a captivating story and it's the story evidence? of an individual. I, I want to hear is, about this evidence at some point. Uh, but go ahead. Okay, <laughs> uh, it's very small. But 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 the story is a personal story, right? It's mm-hmm. Brother Dawn rejecting. You know, he's a brother. He's a he's a, a member of the Cleons who has genetic differences. He's left-handed. He's not supposed to be. He's colorblind. Mm-hmm. You know, he has all of these differences. And he's trying to escape. And of course, he's a, a rube and a victim of, of deception. And the whole plan would never have worked anyway. But but that story sucks you in. Like, what's going to happen with Brother Dawn? You know, yeah. and 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 season two, I think, had more of those individual stories. Like they framed the big events that are happening through this sort of romance between Hober Mallow and Brother Constant, or or you know, more elements of Hober Mallow's story, and Polly's wrestling with his faith. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's the head of the religion, a religion he doesn't believe is really a religion. But Harry Seldon is his God until he gets to meet his God. And there's yeah. that deleted scene that uh, David Goyer put out, yeah. the script of, yeah. where he, he said, we saved $1.6 million by not making this scene. But in the scene, it's Polly. Well, first of all, it's the foundationers arriving on New Terminus. But mm-hmm. it's Polly confronting Harry and telling him how disappointed he is with him. Yeah, I, I Harry says, that. "Well, I wanted you to be the new mayor. I wanted you to run the place." And 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 Polly's like, "You know what? I'm I'm so disillusioned. I don't want to." So I mean, it's an, it's an individual, personal story. Bell Rios. What what was great about the Bell Rios story? It was the love affair between Bell Rios and Glewyn Kerr. Was such a great story. Yeah. And even though we put Glewyn as a character who only exists in the story to be a foil for for Bell. He was still a great character and it was still a great performance by the actor. And it was so sad at the end when Glewyn survives and Bell doesn't, when we really thought it was the other way around. And we see Glewyn yeah. realizing that Bell hasn't survived. Yeah. And it, it's just a really emotional moment. But again, it's these personal stories where this whole historical story is going on around us, 
And I think what makes the show great, and maybe this was a decision that they made seeing the results of season one, they said, we're going to do more of those things that everybody loves. We're going to get more into the stories of, you know, Brother Day and Dem. I mean, look at, look at uh, Laura Byrne as, as Demerzel. She's a robot and she's robotic and she's not supposed to show emotion. And so the actor has to show emotion by the, the twitch of a lip or an eyebrow or or you know the, the motions uh, of her touch, hands touching her um, yeah the yeah, her it, little the, religious the salt thing yeah the salt, the salt thing crystal. I, but what a tremendous job that was to to have to understate all of your emotions but to show how enormous those emotions were and her story again is a personal story she has her own desires her own life that she wants to live but she's been programmed by Cleon she's forced to do things she wouldn't otherwise be doing because she has to and she doesn't want to. And, you know, she's aware of the fact that she's forced. I mean, think about that in terms of that theme of personhood, a person who knows they are in control of a program who cannot violate the tenets of that program. It's a, you know, you you just really feel for Demerzel. Yeah. Uh, I One thing I, I loved in season two, especially, I, there, there were probably moments like this in season one, but these quiet, powerful moments, um, like the, the the probably the strongest one that comes to mind is Demerzel's liberation from her prison, when she had that moment, had that uh, moment. where she could have killed Cleon right. and been free, and she chose not to, yeah, and to, you know, walked into a new prison basically. Uh, that's a, and it's that an was, incredible moment, and it's not and, overstated, and, and, and it's not a not a not a noisy moment at all. It's a very quiet, very just almost nothing happening right. moment. But it's such just it's a huge moment, and it, and and the fact that so many of her moments were like that makes her confrontation with Sarath, where she goes up to her and gets right in her face and says, "Yeah, I killed your family." I. I did it the way I do everything with great efficiency. And she just like, it's so shocking mm -hmm. because everything else that Demerzel does is so understated. And then she takes that moment to just really devastate Sarath with that, with that speech. Yeah, That's yeah. a, you know, incredible scene as well. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Uh, another one that comes to mind uh, really hit me in the very first episode of season two. Uh, and it's the part with Hari, uh, in the in the knife i guess still right before he's just you know when he's uh he, you know he meets uh yana uh or somebody who appears to be yana his his uh life mate and uh, he has to figure it out that this doesn't add up because of the meter of her speaking that's such a subtle thing that you know you don't usually see happen in a tv show it's like that uh, just a the way someone the 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 meter of their speaking reveals who they are, and what they're they the something fundamental about them, and then she turns into to Kale and right. has that questioning. He's questioning his what he really is, you know, and who she really is. What what it is? Are you the are you the radiant? Again, back to and, the theme of personhood and yeah, and yeah, and and that. that that felt very powerful to me. I watched that at least three times because I, I felt that particular part was just so well directed and uh, so rich 
with not very much going on. And then you, you hear the yahoos talking about it and like missing everything completely. <laughs> I mean, I, so I think again, getting back to the actors, the way Jared Harris plays multiple different versions of Harry Seldon mm-hmm. and has to do them all just a little bit differently from each other. And I think we saw yeah. that for Lee Pace and Terrence Mann and Cassian Bilton in season one a lot more where they wind up playing multiple versions of themselves as time passes. There was a little bit less of that for the Cleons in season two, although there's a noticeable moment where Lee Pace has to play the Cleon who is now Terrence Mann meeting and joiner Rue in the Seraglio or whatever they call it. Um, and he has to sort of switch from because the because the brother day of season two is a he's a little loony he's he's yeah uh, you know he, he gets he's standing there yeah. naked and says hey I'm standing here with my manhood flapping around somebody somebody get me a towel I mean there, yeah. there was and the, and the, and the wink but like he you know this this switching and and there are subtle differences like Harry who was in the knife is a little unhinged really. And that never ends. And and Jared Harris has to play kind of unhinged Harry. And then when he's Harry in the vault, he has to be the much more kind of calm and sedate, but also incomplete Harry, because a lot of his memories have been excised. And then he has to play young Harry, although we made fun of how that happened, which they gave him this ridiculous the- wig to wear, which was just so stupid. Which, by the way, they also did with the Louis Perrine character, who they... They, when he was on the ship traveling between Trantor and Terminus, he had a stupid curly wig on. And then later on, he, he had very short hair. And that was how they showed him at different ages. And I just thought someone needs to tell David Goyer that there, there are better ways to do that. <laughs> you know, Jared Harris as student Harry was completely unconvincing. <laughs> you know, he, he looked like a 50-year-old man wearing a wig. Yeah, he did. He did. He did. <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. I, I really I think love, it was. I uh, think it was Joseph who said that it was like if Mo Howard and Ringo Starr had a <laughs> lost baby. <laughs> uh, you guys have some some great uh, cuts that you you deliver. <laughs> we try. We try. <laughs> moments of levity. Moments of levity. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were some great moments of levity in the show this season. Yeah, there were a lot of well-intended and well-executed moments of levity. Yeah. I mean a lot of yeah. them revolved around Hober Mallow. Yeah. And and Brother right in the first in the first season some many of the moments of levity weren't intended. But I think that's like, probably true, yeah. <laughs> but here you had, you know, we we have we have actually a category for voting for best moment of levity and there are things like Hober being executed by the Titans prick where he, you know, shows up with his target on his shirt, yeah, just so silly. And uh, I mean, one of my favorite ones was when uh, the emotional parting moment between Brother Constant and Hober, yeah. where you know he says, "You have to go because you bring people hope." And when she's just about to leave the ship, she says, "Hey, don't you want to know my name?" And he says, "Yeah, of course I do." And she says, "It's Hope." And he's like, "Really?" She goes, "No, but wouldn't that be great if it was?" <laughs> I, just, I laughed out loud. I really did. They they got me. I was. It was like a rickroll. They absolutely sucked me into that moment. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then, and then, uh, and yeah, that was they got that me. was a an echo of of the first uh, time when she he what was it um, when he was guessing her name? Yeah. And uh, one of the guesses that was he thought was. It, she she claimed he got it right, and it wasn't. 
forgot what it was. I can't remember what it was, but that was also yeah. the time we had the Monty Python the, reference there, which was that he oh, said, yes. she said, why did you guess that? And he said, I panicked. And then he immediately guesses Burma, which is if we're yeah. Monty Python fans, that's a little bit of an inversion of the penguin sketch where one of the two ladies says Burma and the other one says, why'd you say Burma just then? And the first one says, I panicked. And there's no way that that was a coincidence. That absolutely mm -hmm. was put in there for the aging Monty Python fans like me who would immediately, again, do the Leonardo DiCaprio. Hey, I, I see what you did there. I see that. Yeah. Yeah. And there, well, is, there is a lot of, uh, I think, okay. there's a lot of reference to other science fiction going on here. There seems to be a fair amount of Dune. One, one of the things that I thought when I first saw the first trailer and you see the gigantic palace and the soldiers in uniform walking through, I got a very Dune feel from that. And there's also walking the spiral out in the desert, you know, all of that. You know, I think it repeatedly comes back to that. I think they they oh, well also the uh, on Una's world with the the those uh, giant mining machines. Yeah, I, that made me think of sandworms. Sure, with that, uh, you know, or the, even the, just I, the giant mining machines that they used on Arrakis to to mine the, the for the spice. Yeah. Um. So I think there's a lot of kind of tributes going on around around here. A lot of little Easter eggs for those who are paying attention. Those who watch the show obsessively multiple times when it comes out, which I definitely did this season. I, I think I watched the average episode probably four or five times. Uh, not quite as many for me. And I'm now like, I, I haven't watched rewatched anything for at least a few weeks, but I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to do a full season to rewatch uh, just for fun at some point. So I, you know, I always watch the episodes twice because because of the podcast. So I watch mm -hmm. the first time and don't take any notes. And then I go through it kind of frame by frame and stop it when I want to write something down because I do a recap of every episode. And those recaps yeah. have gotten longer and longer and longer. I mean, at some point, I think at the end of the season, I just said, you know what, if you really want to recap, just go watch the show because my recap is almost as long as the show. Well, I was thinking um, of doing like a recap episode of season two, like we did for season one a, a while back. And then I thought, ah, there's, but there's other places where you can go to get really good recaps of this show. <laughs> I'll just point to them. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I try to keep things a little shorter, but yeah. I can't help it. I just love to talk. And, you know, I, I edit the podcast. And so when the, when what we do is we we record it on Zoom and it records each track individually. So I can see I can see Dan's track and Joseph's track and my track and the guests' track. And it's always a little embarrassing for me when I first load them into Audacity, which is what I use to edit, yeah. and I can see how much more I talk than everybody else. You just see it. I mean, it's it's just it's just there. Yeah, and it's yeah. I, I yeah. Hey, if you got things to say. I got things yeah. to say. Yeah. No, yeah. I like the sound of my own voice, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> my favorite sound, but it's gotten to editing is so, so crazy. I mean, it's gotten to the point where I can, I can see someone saying, um, mm -hmm. in the, yeah. in the pattern of the, of the, of the, you know, the, in the sound pattern and I can just go and. I know what you it. mean. I know what you mean. Uh, it's, it's really fun working with uh, sound patterns sometimes and trying to like, uh, find when something is messed up 
and you right. you you can find like some syllable that's off or something and you just look for that other syllable that right. another, that same syllable somewhere else and you're like yeah that waveform looks like it should i'll grab yeah. that one and i'll stick it right where that is and, and i've done sure i've enough. used noise reduction once or twice to get rid of persistent background noise uh-huh but it tends to make the whole thing sound a little tinny so i yeah try to yeah I, i've done it a couple times too and and it was definitely better than not doing it because of the, yeah. there was a problem that needed to be fixed. So for me, for me, editing consists mostly of taking out as many ums and likes and things like that as I can and taking out blank space. And I, I you know, it, it's tedious really, but I think it improves the final product. Yeah. I do it a lot more diligently on story episodes. Those ones have a higher level of... Uh, professionalism i think for me uh just conversation i figure naturally has lots of filler words and things so it's okay yeah i but, i i don't want to disturb the voice of the individual person mm -hmm. and that might involve some noise and so i don't just take out everything but long pauses between words you know and with an um in the middle of them i mean i'll just take that out because yeah. nobody wants to sit there listening to that. But like Joseph and Dan and I all have our individual voices. I mean, I, I say the word interesting way too much. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but I'm not going to completely edit it down because I want to preserve the voices of the, of the people and of our guests as well. And we, we tend to get a much better response to our show when we have a guest than we do when it's just the three of us. Yeah. Interesting. I think that's probably true for me too. Is <laughs> that my guest episodes are the most popular? Yeah. Well, we've or had some good the, guests. I, Obviously, we've the, had you a couple of times. The, the biggest surprise for me was uh, the the episode where I read uh, 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 an Asimov short story, Reason, uh, one of the early robot short short stories, uh, a Powell and Donovan story. Okay, R Reason. Um, I, I it was a typical kind of. Uh, number of downloads for uh, you know a um you know, it was it was actually well above typical and i wondered why at first and then it trailed off like they always do pretty quickly but then what was really weird is like about the 23rd day or something i suddenly had this giant peak of people uh downloading this one episode and it went on for two or three days it, was, it turned out to be one of my biggest episodes ever and it was like a, you know, an hour long solo. Did you thing ever find out I why? Was mostly, I never found out what, what led to it, but I know what led to the larger baseline of it was that Asimov was in the title. Yeah. That, or at least that's my theory. It's the only episode I've ever had that had Asimov in the title. We got a tremendous increase in listeners when the TV show was actually being aired. And that happened both seasons. Yeah. And so we had a little bit of an audience and then the show came on and we got a huge increase. And then at the end of the season, it fell off, but it didn't quite drop back to where it had been. And it took a little while in season two, but towards the end of season two, we got a really big increase. And I, I think it really coincided with people really being interested in the show and probably yeah. looking for you know additional material. Yeah. And we'll see. We'll see how much of that audience we preserve going forward. I'm, I'm sure it'll fall back off again somewhat. Right, right. Well, we're going into the desert again. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yep. And we're going to be, you know, we're going to be doing the, the, the sequels. We're going to be doing, we've thought about doing, there's, there's three books that were sort of commissioned by other science fiction writers the, oh, in the, the foundation bees? world. Bryn, yeah, the bees. Uh, the, Bear, Bryn, and uh, Bova. Yeah. So uh, is it Bova? I, it could be. I, I think it's Bova. Yeah. They look interesting. One of the stories I think involves robots that don't have the three laws and a little bit of an examination of that. And that, by the way, is how Asimov wrote himself into Foundation because he, he I, I think it was actually in one of the robot novels. It wasn't in Foundation where there's a conversation about building robots without the three laws. And he refers to them as non-Essenian robots, which is a little inside joke he had with himself. Someone had misspelled or mispronounced his name. And he decided that a robot that follows the three laws would be called an Essenian robot. And so someone says, well, if, if anyone had been successful in, I think it's Han Fostolf who says this, if, if anyone had been successful in building a non-Essenian robot, we would have heard about it. And because the robot stories are now in the Foundation universe, Isaac Asimov himself exists in the Foundation universe. Right. In his right. little clever way. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> There was one thing that you brought up as a topic, which was a wild theories about about the show that, you know, we maybe have been too afraid to 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 actually say. Oh, and before I before I do that, I wanted to say what was the piece of evidence that maybe the emperor didn't carry out that punishment against Azura? Yeah, please tell and me. It was the Bel Rios story, where they had told Bel Rios that they had killed Glewen six years ago. But in fact, they didn't. Mm -hmm. And when they got him out of the prison planet. They told him, oh, yeah, that was just part of the punishment. We just told you we did that, but we didn't really do it. And that gives you at least a glimmer of hope that that incredibly draconian punishment of Azura, where they eliminated everyone she had ever encountered in her, you know, that she'd ever had any effect on in her life, all of her family members and, and everyone she'd ever met, including the other people who worked in the Imperial Gardens. So they had killed all of them. Uh, may, maybe they didn't really do that. Well, yeah. And if you think about it, he he presented that and you know he he not as the reason for doing that intensive purge wasn't to root out the terrorists it was just to punish her it was just to punish it her was, yeah and, and and she was going to be put into that. solitary confinement after yeah, that yeah you can it do didn't that matter just whether as, they really did it or not they just had exactly, to tell her they were doing exactly so it plus who's going to look after the imperial headache remedies if uh if they kill all the gardeners, like, they, you know, yeah. <laughs> you uh, one of my favorite le moments of levity uh, uh, that you guys talked about in season one was uh, the how the, the moment of levity that wasn't was um, if there had been like a gardener in a tree somewhere, something that just fell to plummeted to the ground right after. Like in the background. Fell out of a tree. Yeah. That would have been. So here's my wild theory, and it's it's uh, actually kind of based on something that we've talked about a little bit. So it's based on the idea that Harry has this great tragedy in his life, which was done to him by the Empire, effectively. His wife is murdered by yeah. a functionary of the Empire. And he continues with his work and goes to Trantor. Uh, but he's pretty upset. And even hundreds of years later, when we see him, he's still very much affected by the death of Yana. Yeah. And so my wild theory is, what if everything, everything that's going on is not about 
the great sweep of history, but is just Harry's revenge against the Empire. And it would explain why we've speculated that maybe Harry was responsible for the fall of the Starbridge. I mean, what I've said is if you're setting up the initial conditions of the Selden plan, something like the Starbridge falling is such an enormous event that if you haven't factored it into your plan, it's going to destroy your plan. It's too big. It leads mm -hmm. to the genocides on Anacreon and Thespis, which have a direct effect on Terminus. Like all of that has to be part of the plan. And so you postulate, well, maybe Harry, possibly with the collusion of Demerzel, because that's another possibility, which I'm going to get to a little bit more of in a second in my wild theory. Okay. I, uh, because maybe any Harry, wild theory needs a series of parts that go together. Right. So well, you so need, need to have the strings. I'll tell you how Demerzel yeah. factors into it. Um, <laughs> you know, in the books, in the prequels, Harry and Demerzel have a, a friendship. They know each other. And it's Demerzel is trying to stimulate the creation of psychohistory. So the idea is, well, if Harry was responsible for the destruction of the Starbridge and the death of 100 million people and two genocides afterwards, that kind of makes Harry into a supervillain. And the death of Yana then becomes his supervillain origin story. And what about Demerzel? Well, Demerzel is perfectly placed to collude with Harry. And we saw Harry hack into, uh, what was her name? The woman who kills Yana. He hacks into her files. He hacks into her gun. And he yeah. makes it so that she can't shoot him. In her car. And he reprograms everything. Well, what yeah. if Harry hacked into Demerzel? And on top of the Cleon programming, there's Harry programming as well. And that Demerzel, even unbeknownst mm. to her, is actually working for Harry. And that Harry is just so furious at the Empire that this whole story is about his personal revenge against the Empire. How's that for a wild theory? <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it. Uh, yeah. It, it almost seems too wild. I, I mean, it seems like it, it, that that's a little, I mean, that that is definitely not the Harry Seldon of the books. Oh, no. No, no not but then, at all. Like Harry says at his trial, I'm not a revolutionary. And then mm -hmm. when he shows up on Terminus in episode 10, when he comes out of the vault and one of the Termini says to him, but you said you weren't a revolutionary. He says, yeah, I might have lied about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like, what better way to continue his plan after he dies? Because he was expecting to die in season one. Uh, you know, I think he was expecting the Empire to kill him and eventually he has to have Raish kill him, but he was expecting to die. Well, if you leave some programming behind in Demerzel, in addition to Vault Harry, the hologram Harry, you know, what better way to continue your plan than to have reprogrammed Demerzel somehow? So that's my, you know, I, I was thinking about that after you brought up the subject of like, what's a wild theory? And so I, what about I can't think Kali? of a wilder one. So <laughs> where, where, where does Kali fit into all this? Well, that's a really good question. And there, one of the things that I've noticed about this show is that there are a lot of open questions that are not answered. Uh, season one has the destruction of the Starbridge. We were pretty strongly led to believe that Anacreon and Thespis really did not, at least as civilizations, did not do that on purpose. It, was, it would have been completely insane because the, the end result would have been exactly what happened, which was a genocide against them. Yeah. So who, who was responsible for that? And to me, a lot of signs point to Harry slash Demerzel. Uh, there is, how did Harry get a new body, a new flesh and blood body? And that brings in Kali, right? We mm -hmm. go to, after he meets Kali in the Prime Radiant, we go to Una's world. And there's Kali. 
we don't know if Kali is a real person or a robot or a hologram. Uh, Kali shakes hands with Gail. Gail says, I touched Kali. I, Kali physically <laughs> existed. And then Harry appears with a body. Well, that, that's not explained. Yeah. And there's a number of things that they really just, they leave them to us, which I, I'm a big fan of ambiguity. And then my mind starts to spin around and go, well, how do we, how do we do this? How do we work this into the story? And I honestly, I have no idea what's going on with Harry's new body. Is it a clone? Did they, did whatever Kali is, did Kali grow a body for Harry? And, and Kali doesn't have the same kind of body we know because the, on the beggar, Gail and Salvor detect one life form, not two. But when, when Gail drops down and, or Sal, I guess it's Salvor drops down to get Harry. That's right. Um, there's in the in the eye of the statue. There's Kali, and I guess it's Salvor says, "Who are you?" Well, I don't remember Salvor or Gale. Maybe it was Gale. It was Gale who got Harry. Yeah. Gale says, "Who are you?" And Kali just disappears. You know, but uh, who uh, is Kali? So this she, story has not been. Gale anyway felt. Gale felt Kali, but she doesn't know that Kali was human. Right. She she could have been a robot. She could have been a robot. I. She yeah. could have been. She doesn't seem to be a hologram. I mean, we know Star Trek holograms you can feel, but not yeah. apparently holograms here in, uh, in Although, Foundation. Uh, with Hari tech, you know, you should be able to create a hologram that has any attributes you want, right? I mean, they, they made a big deal about how when Harry's walking through the desert, he doesn't cast a shadow. Or cast footprints. Or foot footprints. Although yeah. I think there's actually right. sometimes when they slipped up with that, but... In that scene, he doesn't have footprints because he's a hologram and he doesn't get tired and thirsty and sweaty because he's a hologram. Yeah, there are, I mean, there are a few things where if you look at them too closely, they don't seem to make too much sense. But Well, uh, another thing they, that, dis, that kind of disappeared is uh, this problem of uh, why Hari, remember Hari was supposed to have a terminal illness. Right. He, uh, I forgot what it was called, some syndrome where... Yeah, I don't was, remember either. And he's they haven't mentioned that. He's been back as a human. I mean, it's only been a few days in his life of his, yeah. his body. But now he's going into these these chambers, these these uh the cryo cryo sleep. sleep. Yeah. So does this mean you know, is does he only have a few of these to do and he can only come out for a few days at a time and you know, he's going to die of this horrible terminal disease? Or did that just like somehow get eradicated? Maybe they eradicated that when they gave him a new body. I, I don't know. You know, I get confused but, with uh, Star Trek Picard because Picard had a terminal disease as well, which I yeah. guess disappears when he becomes a robot. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched right, Picard season right. two. But the 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 uh, Hari still seems to his human body seems to be human the human Hari that was in every other way. So. You know, he does. He has all of Harry's it. memories right up until the point where he dies. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah, he's he's definitely Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's what they're gonna do with that. And you're right, it's only been a few days and he's only gonna wake up for a few days at a time. Yeah. Over the next hundred fifty two years. Is that a is that a good way to keep terminal diseases in check? Is just to cryosleep for a few you know, Well, going back to Star Trek again, didn't Dr. Mabenga <laughs> put his daughter in the transporter and like Locker oh, in there. Right. That's right. In the to pattern keep her buffer, alive. So. That's too, right. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I've never tried it myself. So. 
<laughs> I'll have to let you know in 20,000 years whether that's actually a strategy or not for terminal yeah. diseases. That's always been the thing about like people who, who have themselves frozen now and think, you know, someone will wake me up in the future. And I just think to myself, why? Why would someone wake you up? Like, what's special mm-hmm. about you that, you know, they would wake you up? Like, I, I had this dinner with Marvin Minsky. Yeah. He's a huge totally. giant of science fiction. Uh, science, not of computer science. And uh, he and this other friend of mine kind of bonded over this cryogenics thing. And I just turned to my friend and said, Jay, if they if they find both of you lying next to each other, you and Marvin Minsky, I'm a, and they can only wake up one of them, I'm afraid it's not going to go well for you. Because <laughs> that's Marvin Minsky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so it would go well overall, overall, I... Uh, I recognize the the differences. Some of the things that they changed are some of the best parts of the show, like the the emperor, the, the Cleons. Um, sometimes I wish they had you know adhered closer to the book. As I said, sometimes I bent over backwards into a pretzel trying to make it. Like oh yeah, psychohistory was really at work here. Uh, they shocked me when they destroyed Terminus. I. I was very surprised. We all thought somehow that's going to be undone. And guess what? Yeah. It is not being undone. I right. thought that the, the, the undone, they, they undid the, the killing of all the people. Yeah. Terms, I, I thought that was a little sloppy. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think the way Goyer uh, justified it is he said, well, we did kill off six real important the, characters. I was surprised they killed uh, off Salvador. Uh, yeah. That uh, was a yeah. shock. Yeah. I, I thought that the better solution, and I have said this on our podcast, the better solution to the problem of Terminus would have been the solution that the Second Foundation used in Second Foundation, where a bunch of people sacrificed themselves to pretend that they were the whole thing. Yeah. And they knew that they were going to be either sterilized or just outright killed. But they did it anyway because they believed in the cause. And I thought, well, what if... What if Terminus, knowing that the planet was probably going to be destroyed, what if they had left behind Seth Cermak and 50 or 100 other people and gotten everybody off the planet beforehand and those people sacrificed themselves to, to maintain the story? It would be a little bit sadder and a, little, and a lot more death, but I, I felt that it would be a little more realistic. I mean, when we see Terminus being destroyed, we see Polly sitting there by the vault and we see this wave coming at him. Yeah. And yet, and yet, I have to watch it again because apparently there's also like a flash that's like that seems to be the indication that the vault is going out and grabbing everybody. Yeah, but it doesn't okay. seem to be grabbing Polly. So I don't I, know. You know. From a storytelling standpoint, I I thought that was sloppy. Yeah, I did too. Uh, it, I I kind of forgave it eventually because, but it bothered me while I was watching. Like it. One of the things that Polly says in that unfilmed scene. Yeah. He's upset that Selden sent him into absolute mortal danger, fully expecting him to be killed. And we we remarked on it at the time. Like, isn't Polly being sent into incredible danger? And Polly confronts him with that and says, you sent me off to be killed. And what he says is, I was perfectly willing to go off and be killed, but you didn't tell me. You didn't ask me. Why not? You should have. And it's a, it's a really good moment, I think. It is. Mm-hmm in a cut scene that, that Polly is like, yeah, I would have happily gone and died for the foundation, but why didn't you give me the chance? Yeah. That's, that's such a shame. I have to put it in the show notes where people can go to read that script because it's, yep. um, it's quite a scene. 
it is quite a scene. And and like and again, it points up the difference between Vault Harry and Flesh and Blood Harry. Is that Vault Harry seems to have a kind of an instrumental view of people. Like, yeah, we, you know, some people are gonna die. Warden Jaeger, who Vault Harry incinerates. For why? why? One of the questions Polly asks is, why did you do it? And he says it was for effect. It was because a god has to do whatever. It was completely unnecessary. And But Vault Harry seems to be willing to do that. And and there's this whole question of how much empathy does Harry have for people? And, and maybe the reason why Flesh and Blood Harry was given a body was to reconnect him with his humanity. Mm, that when maybe. he was a hologram, he was getting that way as well. You know, he says to Gail... You know, there's nothing you can do about Salvor dying in the future. And he mm-hmm. he has, when he was flesh and blood Harry, he has much more empathy about Salvor and says, you know, we, here we are trying to save the, the galaxy and we can't even save the people we love, which I believe is something that Gale said to hologram Harry when he was still a hologram. And mm-hmm. he kind of brushes it aside. But when he's human Harry, he feels it more. Right. And and we really see that's a big difference between Vault Harry and and Flesh and Blood Harry is that level of empathy. There's that scene in the I think it's in the final episode where he's he's trying to help Gale get over the death of Salvor, and he talks about Yana and how he knows how it feels to lose people and how it changes you and how you have to you have to keep you know he used that to keep him going. And it's the first time we hear Harry really talking that emotionally about other people. Mm-hmm. And of course, it goes back to the wild theory about the whole thing being his revenge. You know, just throw that in there. <laughs> How he's still really upset about losing Yana. Yeah, and I can her, imagine. And the, death, and the death of his child were completely unnecessary. I, I can imagine uh, empathy being a little difficult if, you're, if your primary mode of thinking is mathematically calculating the probabilities of you know shifts of you know giant yeah and if you're if you're a virtually immortal hologram people are gonna die one way or another they're all gonna die around you and if you have to use some of those deaths to make your plan work well you know 50 or 60 years later they were gonna die anyway well it's interesting you how i said that that the revenge Harry uh, idea is so different from the books is that in the books, in the psycho historian, the only place we really meet Harry real while he's alive. um, He really dwells on this idea of like avoiding the horror of the fall. Yeah. (laughs) Unnecessary horror and, and suffering is like a big part of what he's, seems to be having have hey, I'm heart. not saying that my wild theory is true. Yeah. I'm just saying it's a wild theory. And, uh, you know, trying, I'm trying to do the reverse of what I do as a podcaster, where I try to make things fit into the basic idea. Here I'm trying to take these events and make them fit into my wild theory. So I, I don't, let me just disclaim that I don't necessarily believe my wild theory. I just yeah. wanted to come up with as wild a theory as I could come up with. Well, I think but, it's uh, there's some some flat variant of that might might turn out to be. But I really believe that that these things, these differences between flesh and blood Harry and hologram Harry, and the development of the Cleons and their genetic differences, and the memory editing and Demerzel, I really believe that is the true theme of this TV show. Uh, it's this it's this question of what is a person, what rights does a person have, what does it mean to have your memories edited. 
what does it mean to be under the control of someone else's programming and how, you know, Demerzel is obviously constrained by her programming, but a lot of people in this show are constrained one way or another. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the emperors, who was it that says, um, you know, they talk about how much freedom, I think it's brother dusk yeah, who talks about not having freedom and having, you know, what did he want? He always wanted to have a life and he never got to have it. And so they're all, they're all constrained and Harry is constrained and, and, you know, Rach has to do what he does. And, and Gail tries to rebel against the constraints that Harry's put on her, but she gets sucked back in. And, mm-hmm. you know, like there are, and, and the, the mentalics are constrained by Tellum who controls their minds until she finally dies. And I, that, by the way, that was another great moment of levity to me when Harry appears seemingly having been dead and mm-hmm. kills Tellum rather graphically with an ax. Yeah. And then he just sits down and goes, I had never really liked her. Yeah. <laughs> that that one made me laugh out loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was well delivered. But the, to me anyway, that whole, all of those questions of, of, uh, and, and that was a big theme of season one, right? When, when brother day goes to, uh, he has those conversations with Zephyr Halima who believes he doesn't have a soul. Mm-hmm. And there's all of those questions about what does it mean for this dynasty to be continuing? And even at the very end of season two, when Demerzel wakes up three new Cleons all at once, and they all take steps in unison, they all say, we are empire in unison. You are Demerzel. Like they, they are not free to think and say and do what they want. They are constrained by who they are. And I think that is, that is to me, the overarching theme of all of this is yeah. are those questions. I just want to get back real quickly to one other thing that intri- intrigued See, I'm me. I'm doing it even on your podcast, I'm talking. Which was you know, that the, uh, no problem. Uh, the, <laughs> in the first episode of season two, that yeah. scene I was referring to earlier with Kale and Yana and Hari and the knife. Right. And where he goes into the, gets free of it. Um, that the moment where she's uh, they're they're discussing um, or she's prodding him to understand who she is, and he says, uh, "You know, are you the radiant?" And she says, "Show your work." And he starts talking about how he didn't program her to be the radiant to be a conscious being, uh, and that one really struck me because. I had just read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora. And in Aurora, there's a a fantastic scene uh, as this this arc ship is returning to Earth. Uh, It's a bit of a spoiler, but this uh, arc ship is returning to Earth after a a pretty much catastrophic mission to the nearest star that it could reach. it it's and it it barely has the capability of the big problem is it can't slow down fast enough coming into earth so mm-hmm. it has to um it has to do this this very complicated series of swing bys of of planetary bodies in our solar system mm-hmm. to slow down enough to let the uh, a ferry off to let the people off and come back to earth safely and it, it's like incredibly difficult in, in computation involved to do this. Uh, that it has 
like the the biggest computation problem that it's ever had. And the way Robinson describes what happens is he says it's a combination of this intensive computation for a cause out of, out of dedication to those people on that ship and the the purpose of getting them back alive that eventually turns the this what it it's basically a, like a concert of AIs on the ship that's doing all this work it it basically becomes conscious right at the last moment uh just as it it reaches its final right. moment it becomes it becomes alive and conscious and i will that, say to you that, what that, that's what it made, i thought of when i saw when she was talking about that right. and i was thinking about maybe hari didn't intend the radiant to to become alive but it was but it had this it's driven by a purpose Right. A love for humanity to keep humanity from suffering. For, for well, there's that conversation between them where where Kale says, "I have an interest in the future of humanity," and Harry says, yeah. "I wish you'd said you had an interest in the survival of humanity." Right. And right. The response is, "Well, aren't the two of them the same thing?" But still, yeah, yeah, and <laughs> it, but the maybe maybe there's this, this this idea that the the radiant has become a conscious being out yeah. of that process. And that's something I really hope they kind of follow up on. Well, so and, that was one of the things that they teased, as you say, in episode one yeah. of season two. And they never came back to it. This idea of the prime radiant having achieved somehow sentience. Yeah. And I will say to you again, the same thing that I said the first time you brought up Aurora, oh, God only knows when, is that if you're interested in that kind of story, there's a story called Destination Void by Frank Herbert which is basically the story of a bunch of clones sent out into space to develop an artificial intelligence. And they keep sending the same group of clones out because they've identified like we want this person with these characteristics and we want that person and that person and that person. And they keep sending them out into space and putting them under stress to try to get them to develop an artificial intelligence. And this is the story, not to give away too much, of the group that succeeds. And and at the very end of the book, they succeed, and then something happens. But you know, I highly recommend it. It's a novel. If you like Frank Herbert, who loves yeah. psychedelic substances and thinking about the mind, and but it, it's know, not in the Dune universe. It is not in the Dune universe. No. Okay. Interesting. It's way closer to our history. Hmm. You know, the Dune universe is many thousands of years in the future of our. History. Earth Did he lost. write it earlier or, or later? Do you know? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure when he wrote it. He did write it at least one. I think he wrote two sequels to it. The sequels are not fantastic, but Destination Void is okay. Look highly that. worth it. It's, it's short. Add too. it to it's, my it's, monstrous it's, queue of things that. Yeah, I'm no, I know. Yeah. I I can recommend all I want, but it doesn't. That doesn't. But yeah, no, I haven't read Aurora, and I, I it sounds interesting to me. Oh, you got to read it. Uh, although I I can't say that I loved every aspect of it. Uh, they were, and when you, when you read it, I think you'll understand what I mean. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of people had the same reaction and it's not that it's bad writing. It's like beautifully written. It's just the concept. I've read disturbing. quite a bit of KSR stuff and I don't always agree with everything he says or yeah. love. I mean, I, I read the, the whole Mars trilogy and it is, really long. 
I, I love the Mars trilogy. I, and, I've read, I mean, I just read thought it, that I could have done times. with a little bit less of people getting together in conferences and arguing with each other. Like he could have done that maybe once. Of he loves his conferences. Constantly. He, de- he definitely loves his conferences. There's one in Aurora too. Uh, but I, um, it, I've read it, Salt, which I thought was very good. Oh, Years of Rice and Salt. Years of Rice and Salt, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And then there was one I read about a, uh, it was written fairly recently. It's about kind of a caveman who. Oh, yes. He just sort of sees yeah, his yeah, life. Um, Loon. Yeah. It's okay. A, Loon, I think that's called. And I thought yeah. that was very good, actually. Yeah, it was. Uh, that's another one of my favorites. Uh, it's he has such range, you know, that he can write something from thirty thousand years ago to thirty thousand years in the future. I thought it was very when I think it was when you interviewed him, or maybe it was a different interview that he did, when he talked about the Mars trilogy, and said, mm-hmm. as far as colonizing Mars, if he had known then what he knew now. He would have been a lot less optimistic about the possibility of. Yeah, absolutely, he said that when I interviewed him, and he yeah. says that. I thought a, that was fascinating. Other times too, yeah. He's um, he's definitely made a turn in his perspective about the human future. The, the way he thinks of the human future is that we really have a colossal human emergency in the next thirty years or so, and it in in this if we can. But he's not a, he's not a total pessimist. He thinks that if there's if we can get our shit together and handle this next 30 years that things could get really rosy beyond that. Because then by ha- having handled that problem, we can basically handle anything because that's this is the inflection point that well, we I, have to deal with. But humanity is humanity. <laughs> yeah, I know. Can't be trusted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hope. I hope there's some hope for us. I mean, uh, at the age you and I are, you know, thirty years from now, yeah. I don't know if it's going to matter to us too much. Did we talk about robots enough? Um, we haven't talked I, about robots enough. No. Yeah, and I was going to say um, how I discovered Asimov was really interesting, and not quite the way most people do. I think in that. My dad was a big science fiction fan and had a, uh, a home library of all sorts of science fiction books. And he had one science fiction, uh, one fairly thick volume called The Rest of the Robots, uh-huh. uh, which it turns out was the stories that weren't in iRobot, that were robot stories, which is how most people are introduced to Asimov's stories is through the robot stories in iRobot. And and I got to those much later, uh, after I'd read all the the rest of the robots. And, but at the end of the rest of the robots, it had two novels, two short novels, "The Capes of Steel" and "The Naked Sun." Wow! The first two of the robot series, right? Because he hadn't written the other two yet. Yeah, that book came out back in the this was like in the '60s or something, '60s or early '70s. Right. People were yeah. always trying to get him to write more of what he'd already written, and he was always yeah, resisting. Yeah, yeah. And so it was, I didn't get to read the last two of the that series. I went back, uh, and after I finished reading all seven uh, uh, of the Foundation stories, I went back and I read the two books. I still have the rest of the robots on my shelf. So I read those two novels again, and then immediately went to the library and got the other, the next two and read through those. And I just loved um, uh, 
Robots of Dawn and, and Robots and Empire. Uh, definitely some some cringy stuff. Um, anytime, <laughs> anytime Asimov is writing about women and involving women in his stories uh, in anything like a romantic story, uh, you're going to be having some cringy moments. And yes, um, and we have not shied away from that on Star's End. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we have definitely taken a cold hard look at that. We've yeah. attributed it to various things. I mean, some of it is that you know Asimov was started writing these stories at quite a young age, and yeah. growing up, he went to a boys' school. Right. You know, he right. probably never met a woman for a long time until the, way oh, he, too late in life. He kind of met one. I think he was given his, you know, introduced to his wife to be and said, you're going to marry this woman for your But he did have, points. I mean, Asimov's attitude towards women, it's not like it was a product of his time. People called him out on it. Yeah. And he said, too bad, I'm Asimov. I get to be grabby. I, I... Uh, I like having sex and I think I'm really good at it and just stuff that just makes you just wince. And yeah, yeah, he, you know, the way characters, even in the foundation stories, when they meet a woman, they look the woman up and down and they talk about breasts. Oh, that, I mean, it's just, it's just, the, yeah. The thing really with, is uh, when he, he meets that woman on um, the the first, uh, go on Trevi's, uh, um, I forgot what the world is called in, uh, yeah, I can't remember, it's, but I know what you're it's talking in about. Foundation and Earth. Uh, the, in the early part of Foundation and Earth, when he goes, they go to that planet where the the woman is in charge. She's like the right. president of the whole world, and he basically you know, solves the problem by betting her, and you know, yes, and then everything's yes. no, fine. I, She's well, first of all, with him, Trevis is one of the most unlikable heroes of a well, story you will ever it, meet. If you can separate out that those aspects of it, he's not as unlikable. And, and some some of the some of the I see the Asimov in him. Oh, definitely. definitely. And and that makes me like him more than I would have otherwise. You know, and frankly, in Harry the in parts. the prequels is pretty unlikable too, in, in a lot of the same ways. Yeah, I I kind of like when I, I heard you guys talking about Harry in the prequels. I didn't have quite the same reaction reading the prequels. I I bonded with Harry a little bit as long as, uh, except for. Yeah, anything, anytime sex came up. <laughs> well, like when he arrives at Mycogen, he immediately starts demanding things and, you know, in the middle of the night or whatever. And just, I, I don't know. He just comes across as a little self-centered. But I mean, he's again, very, very Asimov-like. Yeah, yeah. You he's Yeah, but anything having to do with sex. And even though Doors is there and like, so Asimov is, the thing about Asimov is that he, he was self-aware. So Harry mm -hmm. treats women pretty badly, but Doors is an extremely capable woman. Who kind of calls Harry out on it? In a way, she's calling Asimov out on it. He doesn't stop doing it, but he has characters inside the story, kind of looking out at the pages of the book, going, "You know what? You're, you're a sexist, misogynist bastard." And he just goes, "Yeah, too bad." You know, like to yeah. his own characters. I mean, it, it's one of the things about Asimov that, that I've, I, I will I will always bring up is the way he interrogates himself. <laughs> like he made the three laws of robotics and they're great. They're fantastic. And then he spent the rest of his writing career interrogating those laws. What have we weakened the first law? What are the implications? Like all of the iRobot stories are kind of mystery stories that turn on some tension between various aspects of the three laws. 
And what is the ultimate, you know, the whole creation of the zeroth law is like, well, what is the ultimate, you know, the reductio ad, ad, ad absurdum of, of the laws? Well, the robots are going to create a zeroth law that means that they have to protect all of humanity. But even that, like the robots look at that and go, that's too much. And that's why there are no robots originally in Foundation, because the robots removed themselves. And, and he, he never stops in his career interrogating yeah. the things that he's written before. And I mean, like, I've seen writers who do the same thing he did, where they try to unify their various worlds that they've created. Yeah. It seems to be an urge that writers get as they approach death. I, I don't know why. But, but I've never seen anybody consistently looking back and going, well, what are the implications of what I said 30 years ago? Yeah. Let's let's examine that. You know, we, we did a series of short stories, and I hate to say that I cannot remember the titles of any of them. But each one of them is an interrogation of a different one of the three laws. There's an, you know, there's there's an interrogation of the first law, like in in the in Robots and Empire, which leads to the creation of the zeroth law. Like what are the implications of having to think about humanity all the time? And then there's another one where the the story turns on who is sufficiently worthy of giving us orders as robots. And they're really interrogating the second law in that story. Mm -hmm. And then there's, um, where is there the interrogation of the third law? It's there somewhere. But the point is that Asimov is just, he never stops yeah. asking himself, what are the implications of these things? Yes, the three laws are fantastic. And, you know, famously, when a reporter called him up to ask him about military robots, he just hung up on them. He said, I, I won't even talk about that. Well, no. uh, um, but he never stopped asking. This goes along with another thing about Asimov that I've always found fascinating is that that he was his biggest fan um absolutely and he not not just as a writer but as a person and everything but uh as a writer as a reader he loved his own work you know yeah. he loved to read himself and i think he loved to read himself as he was writing he liked to read what he was writing and he was constantly surprising himself with what he was writing he didn't have like a a clear plan what would what he was going to write on any given day he he just started writing, and I think he was like delighted with what he found. But famously and, hated going back and editing. I mean, you look at you know original versions of stories that were published in some of these pulpy science fiction magazines, and then later on, he was given the opportunity to anthologize them. And you read the two versions of the story; they're basically word for word. He he did not like to go back and change anything. Right, right. He, he did it occasionally, but he really yeah. didn't like it. But what was I getting to with that? He's he's just he he's constantly uh, well. That's why I think uh, you find so many wonderful surprises in Asimov's writing. So many twists, and uh, it is that he's kind of engineering the story himself so that he'll be surprised himself by where it goes. Right, right? and I think also that he loved detective stories, and yeah. He used the, the 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 background of science fiction to write a lot of detective stories. You know, the first three robot novels are all detective stories, and of course they are famous for having twists and turns. And, and he really liked to do that. I think that's true. I think he was trying to surprise himself. But I think also the point you made about him being a fan, being his own biggest fan. I think he read his own stuff as a fan, and as fans, we're always kind of niggling away at like, well, yeah, sure, but what are the real implications of what you just said? Like what well, if we take in, that out? He engaged with his fans a lot in in writing, and people yeah. would send in like their questions that didn't like 
wait a second, what about such and such? And he would you know, like some authors might say, I don't want to hear that. But he was like, yeah, that makes me want to write another story about it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I need to write. More. I think that's really a strength. I mean, obviously his yeah. kind of cardboard cutout characters are not a strength. And yeah. that's something that the TV show has done so much better than he did. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you have characters like Bell Rios who the first few times we see him, he doesn't even get a lot of screen time, but the depth of Bell Rios going from being this prisoner on a prison planet, his, his confrontation with brother day. And then he, he sees that Glewin is alive and just the range of emotions and, and, and characterizations that we see him go through. And he, he, you know, one of the, one of the points of the story between Glewin and Bell has to do with whether Bell's time in prison has turned him into a monster or not. And when they arrive on Suena and Bell kind of preempts everything by starting a huge fight in which all the natives except one wind up dead. And Glewin is really upset about that. And he's really worried that Bell has been turned into a monster. And at the end, when Bell has to take an action that's going to lead to apparently lead to Glewin's death, you know, Glewin kind of says to him, I can see that you really haven't become a monster. You're still you. And it, it's it's a really important moment between them. But just the range of and and you know, Ben Daniels kind of craggy face that we see yeah. a lot of close-ups of and just that you know, we don't see that much of Bel Rios, but but there is so much to Bel Rios. Yeah, yeah. And it, I I love that in, in the way they it, do that. It really subverted my expectations too because I thought where where they were what they were setting up with that initial conflict between uh, Bell and Glewin uh over, you know, someday you're going to commit an atrocity blah, blah blah and I I thought where it was heading was that Glewin was going to betray Bell and mm. uh mm. and essentially stop him from committing some major atrocity at the empire's expense and, right. and essentially go over to the foundation. Um, and that's not what, where they went at all. No, and that's all. what I love. I mean, and that's what I love is like, you can have these uh, well thought out ideas of where they're, where they're going with something. And then they just totally flip it upside down on you. Yeah. And I, I de- I'm delighted when that happens. I, I, you know, if if everything happened the way I was expecting, it would be boring. You know, I, I just, yeah. I mean, I can't say enough about what a great job they've done in so many aspects. And David Goyer, who is, you know, he's kind of a superhero guy. He's he's done a lot of action things with explosions, and there are explosions here. You know, <laughs> I mean, we destroy an entire planet, but he has been so thoughtful about the big topics that he wants to explore here. And, you know, I think that's, to me, that's the best of science fiction is when you use, you know, why does science fiction even exist? What does it do that you couldn't do in a regular environment? Well, it allows you to examine things in ways that you can't do without space travel or artificial intelligences and robots and, you know, you know, the technology when science fiction is at its best, is in service of being able to ask questions you wouldn't otherwise be able to ask without those things. If the technology is just there to be cool, all right, that's fun, but it, it doesn't it doesn't do anything literary for you. And yeah. I just think they've done such a great job here in, in, in so many ways. And, you know, it, I mean, the special effects for a TV show have been, I think have been tremendous as well. Yeah. You know, David Gore talked about Becky, the uh, the Bishop's Claw. 
and how that was actually the most expensive effect that they had. And he said, we had to really choose our place, our spots really mm-hmm. carefully to you when we were using Becky. And he, he said he was so glad when Becky died because he didn't, <laughs> he didn't have to do that anymore. <laughs> he also said the other thing that I really want to see is they said that on set, they had a guy in one of those green leotards with a Becky uh-huh. head right. to be a placeholder. And that eventually they're going to release the footage of that. And I would That's got to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've gone on for a bit. I'm sorry. Um, it's me. It's, I just go it, on. No, yeah. it's it's both of us, but I, I'm so uh, happy to have had you on. Um, long overdue. And uh, this uh, is definitely not your first time on uh, Selden Crisis. No. Um, you have but been is it on my first actually, time as me on Selden Crisis? It's first time as you on Selden Crisis, yeah. but your voice has appeared on Selden Crisis. It has. Now. It has indeed. This is now your fourth episode. Where you and I hear rumors that Selden it will Crisis. appear again. That is quite possible. Yes. So I certainly hope that comes to pass. And I hope that I manage to do another voice and it doesn't come out like Homer because <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that would be really it. say something about my range. That, yeah. I, that everyone I do sounds like Homer Munn. Yep. So. Well, I, I could make you bliss, you know, or... Um, uh, I do have a little bit or, of high or pitch Sir, Sir Anovi, you know, if you want to be Sir Anovi. Sure, sure. Why not? <laughs> I could be subservient. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm really enjoyed being on and just having this conversation. And I do realize we've gone on a long way and... Maybe some of this stuff isn't going to make it into the final version. I don't know, but but yeah, uh, most of it does because I'm lazy, uh, so I don't good, edit that good. much. Uh, I will edit the the worst stuff. I I'll look for that really big blip I saw earlier. There was a big blip. Yeah, you. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me on, Joel. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure that the time will come when we invite you back onto Stars End again because because we love uh, having guests, and you're a very good guest, and and we like your perspective. I'm happy on to do it at any time. Uh, it's e- it's easier being a guest than a host. You have to you don't you don't have any you know, responsibilities when you're a guest. You just show I, up. You know, talk. I try when we have a guest. I try to <laughs> shut up a little bit and let the guest talk. I'm not sure how successful I am. All right, um, I'm going to say good night, and right. we'll talk to you later. Good night. <laughs>